Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, a lot of bills are still waiting on Governor Brown's desk for his signature. One of them is whether to give students the right to replace the 11th grade Smarter Balance test with the SAT or ACT college admissions test. Another one is to extend the ban on suspensions of students for willful defiance of school authorities to the 8th grade. That's right. Currently, you can suspend students for this very vague category, which, among other things, has resulted in African-American students being disproportionately suspended. The ban currently only extends to the 3rd grade. Yeah, that would be a big deal if he expands it to the 8th grade, because I think last time he signed the K-3 ban pretty reluctantly. One bill that he did sign since our last podcast was a ban on for-profit charter schools, but we'll talk about that later. First, we'll be taking a more in-depth look at Senate Bill 328. That's a bill to start the school day later so teenagers can get more sleep. Yes, the bill has gotten a lot of attention, actually more attention than almost any other bill, at least regarding kids and education. The bill will require middle schools and high schools to start no earlier than 8.30 in the morning. We haven't aligned Dr. Mariah Bond, a pathologist at Scripps Memorial Hospital in La Jolla. Dr. Bond is San Diego chapter leader of Start Schools Later, a national organization that is advocating to do just that, get schools to have later start times. Dr. Bond, why are you so passionate about this issue? Everyone recognizes the benefits of having a healthy diet and adequate exercise for optimal health. But what people fail to frequently remember is that there's three pillars of health, and the third pillar is adequate sleep. And a couple of years ago when my son was in eighth grade and we were looking for a place to send him to high school, we realized that we had no choice in San Diego within a reasonable commute distance where he could go to school at a healthy time as defined by the Centers for Disease Control and many other medical organizations with all of the schools in our district except one which was too far away starting at 7.30 or earlier. And that's when I became involved in the Start School Later movement. Yeah, what does the science say and what studies can you describe that back this up? So there are multiple health risks of chronic sleep deprivation, which include type 2 diabetes, obesity, migraines, immune system disruption, risk-taking behaviors including smoking, drinking, physical fighting, inactivity, as well as mental health implications such as anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideations. How do we know that kids just won't go to bed later? So the data shows that if school starts later, twice as many kids will get a full night's sleep. We've been speaking with Dr. Mariah Bond, who is the San Diego chapter leader of Start Schools Later, a national organization that's advocating to have schools start at a later start time. Has this been tried in any other state, or has it been done on a district-by-district basis? It's mainly been adopted district by district, but this data has been around for 25 or so years. And so many schools across the country have done it in all different varieties of districts. It's not just, you know, small districts who've done it, but some rather large districts. For example, Fairfax, Virginia is quite a large district in our country. So you've seen all the letters opposing this by most of the school organizations in California, the school boards association and business school officers and full range. So what do you say to the issues that have been raised? Are they simply adult issues that can be solved? Are they raising legitimate 
concerns about uh, logistics and about getting, for example, parents take kids to school when they go to work and that this may push back sports and restrict extracurricular activities in the afternoon. These are some of the issues. You, you've seen them all. The first one I'll address is the after-school issues with after-school activities. So for the vast majority of districts who start in the 8.30 to 9 a.m. range, most of them are still getting out around 3.30. So it's not as if we're asking them to stay at school, you know, till late in the evening. So that's point one, is there's plenty of time for extracurricular activities. As far as the working parent argument, I can tell you that no school schedule is convenient for a working parent because the school day is about six hours and my work day is eight to nine hours. And that goes for most working people. So on one end or the other, it's going to be inconvenient. And for every family that finds this change inconvenient, it might be more convenient for a different family. So the school boards don't care if the school day is convenient. They're scheduling it for what's convenient for them. And should convenience trump what's best for the student. And it just shows that they're trying to protect the status quo. They're afraid of change. And what we need to do is have a state law that will protect our kids. Otherwise, each individual district is going to have to go through this on their own, which is far, far too time consuming. So you can bet that you'll keep seeing us until this issue gets solved. Listen, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Mariah Bourne of Scripps Memorial Hospital in La Jolla. And more importantly, she's leader of the Start Schools Later organization in San Diego. We're now pleased to have Teresa Harrington, our reporter, with us in the studio. Teresa has been covering this issue and monitored the assembly hearing on this bill, which actually took place on the last day of the legislative session. Tell me, what was the session like? It was pretty interesting because it did not break down along party lines. There were Republicans and Democrats who were for it and Republicans and Democrats who were against it. And many people were actually citing their own personal experiences, either as students or as parents. Um, and, and then just let me ask you, I mean, the, People are passionate about this on either side. Was that reflected in the hearing? Absolutely. That was reflected. And then a lot of the people who were against it were talking about their constituents um, in terms of their local school boards and saying, well, our local school board members are telling us that they want local control and you should listen to your local school board members, whereas other people were thinking, yeah, but it's about the kids and the research shows that this is better for kids. And so that kind of trumps local school board control. Now, what was very interesting was last year this issue did come up in the legislature. It passed the Senate, didn't pass the Assembly. This year it passed the Assembly. So uh, now, as we've been talking, uh, this is now on Governor Brown's desk. What do you think is going to happen? Because there are some heavy hitters who are opposed to this bill. The, the School Boards Association, the California Teachers Association, the Administrators Association, School Business Officers Association, kind of a who's who's list of, of the biggest uh, education organizations in the state. Right. But there are also a lot of people who are for it, um, who are also heavy hitters in some respects, such as the California PTA. Some local school boards are actually in support of it. The California Federation of Teachers is in support of it. So it really doesn't break down along any really predictable lines in that respect. Well, what do you think is going to happen then? Well, I did contact his office, and of course they said that they Governor Brown's office. Right, and they said that he doesn't, you know, tell people ahead of time how he's, whether he'll approve or veto it. But what even the people who are against it are saying is that even though they're hoping that he will 
be motivated by the local control argument. If he does go along with the argument that this is a public health issue, then he may be inclined to sign it after all. Okay, Teresa, you're a parent and um, you have six children. Yes. From a parent's perspective, would this have been, and I, I think all your kids are now grown or in college, but Correct. when you when they were of school-going age, is this a bill that you would have supported? Um, I think I would have supported it because my kids actually did stay up late and were sleep-deprived, and now when they went to college, they did not choose early morning classes, but they had the choice to do that on their own at that point. Um, but, you know, I had the flexibility in, in work hours, and for part of the time, I was a stay-at-home mom. And so there are parents that don't have that kind of flexibility, and one of the arguments that the people who are against this are saying, even if you do delay the start time, that doesn't necessarily mean that kids will get more sleep, because if their parents have to drop them off at the same time, they're still going to be getting up at the same time, or it could cause problems for parents who um, will have to get to work and drop their kids off early anyway, and then some schools might have to provide supervision before school. And it is also true that some school districts are starting later, like Long Beach. So really, any school district could do this if they wanted to. Yes, and that's another argument of the people who are against it. They say nothing is preventing an individual school board from making this decision, and that's the whole idea of behind local control. Let us decide what's best for our kids and our communities. Okay, Teresa Harrington, thanks for bringing us that report, and uh, look forward to your commentary when we find out what the governor does. Thank you. We're back with John Fensterwall. John, let me ask you the same question I asked Teresa Harrington. Put on your prognosticator hat, and what do you think Governor Brown's going to do on this uh, very high-profile bill? I think it's really hard to fathom the mind of Jerry Brown, and I don't know what he's going to do, except that this may be his last statement for local control as a way of emphasizing the importance of it, regardless of the, the science behind a later start. And you know, John, one of the interesting things about Governor Brown's tenure, education has really been a central part of his agenda, even though he's not a parent, doesn't have his own kids. But on this issue, I just don't think he's going to be wanting to weigh in as to when kids should be going to sleep, shouldn't be parents making sure the kids get sleep, let the school districts decide when they want to open school. So I don't know. Uh, this is one of the bills. It seems like a slam dunk. I think he's going to veto it. I think that Dr. Braun made clear People for this bill are very passionate, and they will be back next year. Let's talk about this year and actually this week. One bill that Governor Brown did sign since our last podcast was one banning for-profit charter schools. There aren't that many for-profit charter schools in California, and Governor Brown actually vetoed a similar bill three years ago. Why do you think he signed this bill? He didn't give any indication when he signed it as to why he changed his mind, this bill was different. The bill not only prohibits ownership of charter schools, but those that operate charter schools. And so the tricky point is, what is the definition of operate? This bill tried to make that clearer, and there's still some ambiguity in the language, but it must have satisfied him. Because it's a, there's a complexity here. that One of the big operators in California is this K-12 Inc., and there's this California Virtual Academies, that's about right. nine of them in California, and they have a contractual kind of consulting relationship with K-12 Inc. These California virtual academies called CARVA, they have their own nonprofit boards, and then they 
say that they contract with K-12 Inc. for management services, communication services, supplies, and so on. So are these schools actually owned by K-12? Well, they say no. Yeah, and curriculum, too. That's the most important thing for an online school. They say no because they say they have independent nonprofit boards. So I think it all comes down to do they really have independence? And that's something that I think you'll have to watch the schools, in fact, to see who's appointed and the votes that they have. Who's appointed on their boards, you mean? Is that yes, you mean? who's appointed to the boards of these nonprofit affiliates. John, you talked with Michael Kraft, uh, who's a senior vice president with K-12 Inc., that really this bill is designed to target. And he says, oh, they can live with this bill and that it wouldn't keep them out of California necessarily. That's right. What he said was, as far as they're concerned, they comply with the law right now. And if they don't, they will meet the requirements of the law and make changes. Very interesting. So, so this is not necessarily a done deal then, despite this legislation. Well, it's certainly a symbolic victory for the California Charter Schools Association, which has been wanting to say that there are no for-profit charters in California, period. And whatever actually happens in terms of this relationship between K-12 Inc. and other for-profit corporations and non-profit charter schools, it does indicate a tightening of the screws in terms of the charter school sector, which many people have been pushing for and all the gubernatorial candidates, including Gavin Newsom, almost certainly our next governor, has said they don't want for-profit charter schools. So this takes a step in that direction. Right. And just remember that Kamala Harris, when she was the attorney general of the state, she launched an investigation into K-12. So if it appeared that K-12 Inc.'s affiliates are not operating independently from the parent corporation, I don't doubt that there'll be another investigation. That just about wraps it up for this week in California education. And next week, John, we're going to be inundated with over three dozen research reports on California education. This uh, Getting Down to Facts 2, which some of you may remember 10 years ago, there was Getting Down to Facts 1. Yeah, three dozen studies, 20 briefs summarizing those. We will have full coverage next week, and we hope to summarize for, for you what's in them, along with some video interviews and some other things. We're, we're on top of it, Lewis. <laughs> Good to hear. And these reports are, are really designed to really help shape the discussion about education reform going forward under the next governor and uh, focusing on some key issues and how we achieve an, uh, we achieve, on how we achieve a more equal education system in the state. You're right. The timing is not uh, coincidental. It's time for the next governor, the next superintendent of public instruction and legislature. Okay, thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalantari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. We also have music from EdSource's own Justin Allen. You can find us on iTunes and at edsource.org podcast. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.